Chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. And the prophet writes here, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. If you would join me in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you again for this day. Lord, thank you for this word. Lord, thank you for our worship this morning so far in song and in confession. Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you, Lord, through word, Lord, and through Eucharist, and through more singing, Lord God, and through confession of our faith. We do pray, Lord, that you would honor our worship. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit among us today, and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Connor just mentioned, um, Advent, the season of Advent at its core, is for the purpose of preparing ourselves for the presence of God, especially the presence of Christ at work in our lives. Now, this includes how we reflect on his incarnation and how he accomplished our salvation by his death and his resurrection. But it also includes our hope in his second coming and the promise of our own bodily resurrection. But then finally, this also includes, and more immediately probably relatable, again, as Connor mentioned, that this includes his work in our regular day-to-day lives through the power and the work of his spirit that has been poured out on us. And so last week as we began Advent, I made the comment that I was going to try to add some little sub-themes to our traditional themes, uh, specifically that relate to the idea of cultivation, like in gardening. And so as last week as we considered Isaiah chapter 2, Verses 1 to 5, we discussed how that text really, as we begin this new Christian year and the new Christian calendar, how that text really tilled 
or stirred up the soil of our hearts, prepared them for planting for this new year. But as we follow the Christian calendar in this new Christian year, we... Sorry, I skipped over a, a line in my notes and I totally got off. But anyway, the point is, so now, anyway, now that the, heart, the, to the soil of our hearts have been tilled and stirred up, we, we need them to be planted, right? They, we need them to be watered. We need them to be fed. And so what this text does, it gives us quite a few different bit of imagery that really builds out of what Connor and Angela just read in Matthew chapter 3. At least it informs John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Verse 11, where he says, he, speaking of Christ, will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so what this text does is it actually serves now that our soil, the soil of our hearts have been tilled. It serves as the seed. It serves as the water and as the food for the peace that is found in Christ, not only in Advent, but throughout the entire year. And it does so in three ways. So if you're a fun note taker, then you've got three little points this morning. And the first one is this. The first way in which this text serves as the food and the water for our hearts is that this text reminds us of Jesus' superior lineage. And this is found completely in verse 1. Look again at what Isaiah says there in verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, Again, we're in Advent, right? Our hearts, we're preparing our hearts. Our hearts are being prepared for the, for the coming of Christ at Christmas and for his second coming and then, or his third coming, as, as Connor was just uh, telling us, or in our everyday lives. How does this aspect help us in our Advent preparation? Or even more so, how does this serve as the food and the water for the cultivated soil of our hearts that have now been tilled up? So to answer this, we have to at least understand what Isaiah just said right before this text in chapter 10. So in chapter 10, Isaiah uses a lot of imagery. I mean, he's a prophet. This is part of their writing, right? But in chapter 10, Isaiah uses this imagery of a forest that had been destroyed. It had been cut down. And he does so in order to illustrate God's purging of the evil in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel and Judah as they're led away into exile. And so now that they're in exile, this forest has been cut down. It's been destroyed. It's been laid waste. But then he comes to verse, he comes to chapter 11, verse 1, and he says, In that wasteland of a forest, there's one stump that's still there. And that one stump will have a shoot come up out of it. Which tells us very clearly that, again, in this complete decimated forest, there's one stump that still has life in its roots. And it exists between, in that one particular stump, and out of that particular stump, a better and more faithful nation for the Lord God will come forth. And that nation will bear fruit for the Lord God. That nation will not be cut off. That nation will not be cut down. It will not die out. Calvin here notes, he says that all of this is for the purpose of restoring the abundance and the magnificence of the consumed forest that is the people of God. But notice here, Isaiah, in this verse, though, he uses a name that we typically don't think much about, at least after 1 Samuel 16. And he uses the name of Jesse. Now, when we think about Christ coming from the lineage of kings, we usually don't go all the way back to Jesse. We stop with David, right? He is the son of David. So why go all the way back to Jesse? Why not stop at David? Because we all like David. Why go back to 
David's father, Jesse. What is Isaiah doing? What he's doing, he's doing this for a very clear purpose. He's telling us that Christ is the new David. He's the better David. Augustine writes here, he says that the purpose of going back to Jesse and not stopping at David is to show us that Christ is the one who is hidden in the root of the stump in the wasteland of the forest. Calvin proclaims, he says, we can infer here that this prediction applies solely and only to the person of the Lord Jesus. For until he came, no such shoot arose. And furthermore, this also stresses that Christ was not and is not simply just one more descendant in a long line of unfaithful and failed kings. Rather, Christ will shoot up from the very same roots as David himself, from the roots of Jesse, telling us that there is still life in the roots, telling us that this is a life that resides only in the faithfulness of God by providing for us a new David and a better David and a final David. And so what this does then is this actually informs the second half of that verse where Isaiah goes on and he says, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now here's where we get to start having Old Testament imagery fun, right, and trying to understand what he means. Because there's two, there's probably more than two, but there's two possible interpretations that I'm going to mention this morning. So this could either mean, and rightly so, I think, that this is referencing the Lord Jesus directly. Or it's referencing the people of God, specifically the church. But like last week, again, I think this is a bit of both. And the way we see that it relates to Christ, the fathers do this, the Puritans do this, the reformers do this. They all go to one particular word in this second half of verse 1, which is the word branch. Because in the Hebrew, it's the word netzir to which they all understand to be the root word for the word Nazareth. And so they come to this and they say, this is referencing Christ directly because he is the Nazareth of God. And, he, and Bede, the, the venerable Bede, writes this. He says, Netzir can be translated either as flower or as pure. And he says, the Son of God was made flesh for us. And he can rightly be called by these names because he assumed a human nature which was pure of every vice and because he is the fount of and source of all spiritual fruit for all who believe in him. So that's how it relates to Christ. But as it relates to the church, I think Jesus helps us out here. Not the fathers, not the reformers, not the Puritans, but the Lord himself. Because he tells us in John 15, as we even read this morning in Sunday school, I am the vine, I am the shoot, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And so the point is this, the tilled soil of our hearts should be able to take comfort this Advent season at the beginning of this new Christian year, and they should be fed from this truth, with this truth, because there is still life in the root, and that life is Christ himself, and we are the fruit of Christ, and we in turn are called to bear fruit for Christ. So that's the first thing this text helps us do. The second is that this text not only reminds us of Jesus' superior lineage, but it also reminds us of his superior spirit-empowered judgment and authority. So starting in verse 2, Isaiah writes this. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So to understand this, let's, let's keep building out of that lineage that we just looked at in verse 1. 
So Christ, as the new and the better and the final David, has a spirit that is vastly superior to the previous descendants of David. As the spirit of God rested upon David, so will the spirit rest but also dwell upon this new and this better branch, this new and this better root and shoot in David, empowering this new and better David to render Holy Spirit authoritative judgment upon the world. But it's important to pause here because you read this and you think, well, that means Jesus needed something. And, that, and we need to remind ourselves that Jesus needed none of this. Rather, it was to signify for Israel and for Judah and for us that there would be a change in one governmental order to a better governmental order. Justin Martyr writes here, he says, The scriptures state that these gifts of the Spirit were bestowed upon Christ, not as though he needed them, but rather they rested upon him. That is, they came to an end with him. And so now, now that we, we know that this, this ends up being fulfilled in his baptism, which we will celebrate during the season of Epiphany, but, but this reminds us of the reality that the Messiah will not rule in the power and the motivation of a fallen human spirit, but rather he will rule by the life and breath of God himself. And as a result, Christ's reign will be and is characterized by these spirits that we read here in verse 2. He's characterized by wisdom, by understanding, by counsel, by knowledge, by might, and by the fear of the Lord. Every single characteristic that is lacking in fallen humanity and had been lacking in every single descendant of Jesse and David until the time of Christ and until the coming of the Lord Christ. But it's the same spirit by which the Lord himself imparts upon us to empower us to keep God's covenant and to bear fruit for him. Again, we read this this morning in Sunday school. In John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus tells us, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. And then in John 16, 13, he promises when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, declare to you the things that are to come. But notice here at the end of verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3, Isaiah repeat, repeats a phrase. He says this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And he goes through this list, and he says, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then he begins verse 3 by stating it again. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So he repeats this phrase, the fear of the Lord, which tells us something because every time there's repetition in Scripture, we probably ought to pay attention. It means it's significant. It means it's important. And so this repetition, what it does is it underlines for us that the true understanding and knowledge and wisdom and might and counsel is an experiential knowledge of Yahweh, not simply an intellectual one. It's one that is intentionally lived out as part of our regular everyday lives, and Christ has modeled this for us. This is how this reminds us of the goodness of Christ's advent on a regular basis in our lives. Christ's rule is characterized always and constantly by a right concern for God's priorities. Or to put it another way, his is a rule and a reign that is characterized by the living out of the truths of Scripture. Jesus delights in the fear of God. As David writes in Psalm 1, he says, His delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
According to Proverbs, fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. But also according to Proverbs, there is confidence found in the fear of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is instruction in wisdom. The fear of Yahweh leads to life. And whoever fears Yahweh is able to rest in the satisfaction found only in Yahweh, Proverbs tells us. Later in Isaiah 33, he would tell us that there is stability, there is an abundance of salvation, there is an abundance of wisdom, an abundance of knowledge found only in fearing the Lord God. The rule and reign of the Lord Jesus serves as water and food to the tilled soil of our hearts because it is characterized by a right concern for the priorities of God to be lived out and to be fulfilled within the kingdom and within the people of God. And Christ has the spirit of the fear of the Lord, but he has also passed on to his people the fear of the Lord. But it's the same spirit that we read about in verses 2 and 3 that allows Christ to judge with this empowered authority. Look at the rest of these verses. Again, he has these spirits in verse 2. And then we read in verses 3 and 4, it says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, but he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So again, thinking about the superior lineage of Christ, The Spirit will enable this new and better and final David who has come forth from the root to rule and to govern very differently from all of the other failed kings that came before. When a king delights in God, when he delights in the fear of God, when a king delights in Yahweh, he is living out of his experience of God which therefore emboldens him and the Spirit empowers him to rule as God would have him rule. This is why the kings were all commanded in the law to write the law by their own hand when they took up the throne. It allows them to delight in the fear of the Lord God because they delight in his word. And so what we see here, though, is further clarification on how the reign and the rule and the And the judgment of Christ will be different than any other king that has come before or since. Because notice again in verse 4, he says this. He says, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. And with equity, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This tells us that Christ judges not on the basis of an outward appearance, not upon what his eyes see in verse 3. Nor will he judge based upon mere claims or reports, or by what his ears hear. But instead, his judgment will be based upon righteousness and justice, meaning that Christ is the perfect impartial judge. Cyril of Jerusalem even states as much. He says, Christ does not esteem the learned above the simple, nor does he esteem the rich above the poor, because he is the perfect impartial judge. And so notice, though, that this authority is not only from the spirit that rests upon him, but it's even from his word, the spirit and the word are brought together and they issue forth from the mouth of Christ. Isaiah writes this in the rest of verse four. He says, he shall strike the earth with the rod or in the Septuagint, it actually said the rod is translated as word. He shall strike the earth with the rod or the word of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. 
In Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same word used for breath, which is the word that Isaiah uses here, but it is also used elsewhere throughout the Old Testament to refer to the spirit of God, telling us that at the same time that Christ renders judgment with righteousness and equity, his word will also strike the earth, his teaching will strike the earth, and the breath of his lips, the spirit that issues forth from his mouth, will kill the wicked. But then notice, as we come to verse 5, all of this is guided by principles, by the principles of a spirit-empowered righteousness and faithfulness. Because he says this, he ends this section with this, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is explicit language here. We shouldn't miss this. I think sometimes we miss a lot of what God is intending for us in the imagery of Scripture because we mask it in our Western niceness, right? That sounds a little dirty, so we don't want to talk about it. But we can't miss this because look at the exact wording that Isaiah uses here. He says, righteousness shall be the belt about his waist and faithfulness the belt of Christ's loins. We all know what that means. Other than one person in here, we're all adults in the room, right? These words are very carefully chosen, not only by Isaiah, but by the Spirit who inspired them, because they speak of a garment that is worn against our most private and intimate bodily parts, the exact parts that Adam and Eve had to cover when they understood their nakedness. And this is why this matters. Because righteousness and faithfulness that we see here in verse 5 that God and Christ uses to judge the, uh, judge the poor and with equity the meek. Righteousness and faithfulness are fundamental to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness and his faithfulness is so innate to his nature that it is at the very center of who he is. And so what Isaiah is describing for us here is that righteousness and faithfulness are what girds up the loins of the Lord Jesus. And if we were to strip away all other clothing found on Christ, what we would find left is his righteousness and his faithfulness, a constant righteous and faithful delight to be true to all of God's desires and to delight to render judgment based upon God's standards. Again, as the tilled soils of our heart are fed and watered by these truths, we are to be reminded that the righteousness and faithfulness of Christ are also to be at the very center of our own existence as well because we have been given his righteousness and his faithfulness. Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Third and finally, not only does this text water and feed and stir up our hearts because of the superior lineage of Christ and the superior judgment of Christ. But this text also reminds us through the rest of this text of the superior fruit of the spirit-empowered authority and judgment of Christ. We saw in verse 1 where we see that this branch from the roots of Jesse will bear fruit. Here is part of that fruit in verses 6 through 10. Isaiah writes this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. 
Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all people, of him shall all the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So there's one interesting detail I just want to mention from all of this before we come to the table. I say one, it's two, really. But, but really, it's asking this question, what's Isaiah getting at, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of animal life he's mentioning here. What's, what's the imagery he's doing here? And again, like earlier, I think we can interpret this two ways that are both correct. We can interpret it literally, but we also need to understand that prophetic language is also very symbolic. So we need to understand the symbolism here. So here's how we understand it literally. You read it, and it literally means what it says. That's it. But let me just stress this, right? So reading this, we can understand pretty quickly how due to the righteousness of Christ, the fruit that comes up out of the root of Jesse— Because of his superior judgment and holiness and faithfulness due to the Holy Spirit, the goodness of Eden will be restored in Christ. This is pre-fall promises, meaning that as a result of the righteous judgment of the Lord Jesus, all creatures that are currently, big bold air quotes, natural enemies, shall no longer be natural enemies. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, Christ, who is our great shepherd, shall take such care of the flock that those who would hurt them will not be able to. And they shall not only not destroy one another, but no enemy from without will be permitted to give them any molestation. And a more modern commentator states this. He says, Natural enemies in the animal kingdom will live together. They will feed together. They will play together. And the strong and the venomous beasts will not harm anyone, even a little child. Because what is scarier than thinking of a small child picking up a snake, right? But he says fear and danger will disappear and will be replaced instead with harmony and peaceful relationships. That's a very literal interpretation, and I think it's very helpful, and it's very good, and it's very right. But we can't ignore the symbolism in prophetic language. Because as it relates to the symbolic understanding, I think we need to rightly make the connection between the peace of God and the peace of Christ— among all peoples. This is the full and complete result of Christ's judgment that will be complete and ultimate peace. Not merely the cessation of war like we saw last week in Isaiah 2, chapter, three, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, but this will also be the complete unification of all things that were formerly divided because of the fall. And the fathers are very helpful here. Chrysostom writes this. He says, not only... The meek and the mild and the good will form the church, but also the wild and the inhuman and the men whose ways were like those of wolves and lions and bulls. They will all flock together and form one church. Eusebius writes, he says, Isaiah continues to prophetically show the transformation of all different races of humanity because of the teachings of Christ. And Gregory the Great, who is very eloquent, says this. He says, We were all gathered from many kinds of iniquity into the concord of the Holy Church to make it seem clearly 
that what was said through the prophet Isaiah about the promise of the church has been accomplished. One who prepares himself as a daily sacrifice to God through a contrite heart, and another who once raged with cruelty like a lion, and yet another who remains in the simplicity of his innocence like a lamb, have all come together into the folds of the church. Behold the kind of charity that enkindles and consumes and melds and reforms such a diversity of minds as though into one species of gold. But as in all things with interpreting this Old Testament imagery, we have to stress that both are very true. Literally, the wolf and the lamb will dwell together. Literally, the lion and the young goat will lie down. Literally, a lion will eat straw like a cow. But the same is also true symbolically. All peoples from all walks of life, from all cultures, from all languages, regardless of the heinousness and the depravity of their fallen sinful lives, because of the Holy Spirit-empowered work of Christ in his righteous judgment, by grace, through faith in Jesus, all who come to Christ will find full and complete peace in Christ and only in Christ. It is not without reason that when the angels heralded his birth, they proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And then what Isaiah does in verses 9 and 10 is he actually gives us really both the already not yet result of this peace. Again, he says this, They shall not harm or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of him shall, be, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, this holy mountain imagery should sound familiar from last week. In Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah writes again, It shall come to pass in the latter days, which are these days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. In the latter days, these days that are the already, but also the frustratingly not yet, we are promised that a peace that has both come in Christ and is still waiting its final fulfillment in the return of Christ. But because of Christ, the relationship between God and man, and ultimately the relationship between man and man that was lost in the fall, has now been mended because of the cross and the resurrection. And what we are now living out in the present is detailed then in the second half of verses 9 and 10, where he tells us again that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Chrysostom writes here, he says, this is the successful spreading of the gospel all over the world. And he says, for it is only through the work of Christ and the gospel of Christ that peace is completely attainable. And so thankfully our hearts can rejoice and we can rejoice because of the first advent of Christ, peace has arrived. But also because of the first advent of Christ, the root of Jesse now does stand as a signal for all people. And those who find rest in him find the peace of God which exceeds all understanding 
And as Isaiah closes here, he says, And his resting place shall be and definitely is glorious. So all praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.